looking to take your computer repair business website to the next level? Go to techsitebuilder.com and find out how to make a site that works. Welcome to My Hard Drive Died, episode number nine, with Scott Moulton from MyHardDriveDied.com. Hey, Scott. Hey, how you doing? Awesome. And um, tell us a little bit again about your company, Scott, just to fill in people who maybe haven't heard the show before. Uh, my company is My Hard Drive Died, and basically we're at MyHardDriveDied.com. Uh, or a data recovery company, uh, we do a number of different things, uh, forensics uh, and data recovery, and I also do training classes based on those two combinations of things added together. Uh, so we're a full uh, in-house data recovery center, do physical recovery, which there's a lot of data recovery companies out there that don't do physical. They just say we're a data recovery company, and they're, and they're just receiving in logical recoveries. Uh, physical means um, replacing platters and head assemblies and motors and actually fixing the, the damaged components themselves. Uh, and then we also do forensics in-house as well. So when we actually have a case or something we need to testify in court about, you know, and in most cases, if it includes some damage or some damaged equipment, we uh, we do everything that has anything to do with forensics. That was primarily what we were doing first uh, 10 years ago. And then we kind of grew into the data recovery segment because we were repairing damaged hard drives in forensics cases. And so now I actually teach classes and fly all over the country and uh, have a five-day class that I've developed that you know a, a number of different agencies, uh, three-letter agencies will attend and actually take, or corporations will hire me to come in and teach it. Uh, private companies or something along those lines on how to do this combination of data recovery with forensics with all the equipment. So that's that's what we do. That's very cool. It's a nice. It's, it seemed like a smooth transition from forensics into the data recovery business, and I guess they could run concurrently, but no problems. Yeah, uh, I mean, we actually separate them in our lab, though. All the forensic stuff is on one side of the room, and all the data recovery stuff is on the other. And uh, only in instances where we've done the data recovery and then we have to move it over to forensics for the investigative component, do, do they ever cross over? Uh, but they are complementary businesses. They they do a lot of the same. Uh, you know, physically, when you're actually doing forensics, most of the time you're not dealing with with in many cases, you know, physical damage or something, you're usually dealing with a drive that was pretty good, but you're investigating the content. And of course, since I know so much about file systems and rebuilding file systems, it makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, and that's where my background actually was in. And so when I started doing data recoveries, it ended up being some of the same kind of stuff. Like here, I'm going to repair this damaged file system. And it's all based on the same same criteria, the same stuff. You're just looking at, you know, worse situations. Uh, and you don't have the paperwork. That's pretty much the point. You don't in data recovery. You don't have the paperwork hmm. that follows you through the All way right. you do in forensics. It probably so. slows you down a bit, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, I get really sick of paperwork. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, it's had its time with me. I'm I'm tired of it. You know what? I always wanted to ask you, and it just reminded me now with you talking about that. What? How did you get started? How do you know so much about hard drives? Um, well, I mean, I was doing you know f- you know physically as a uh, IT person for, you know, 15 years, obviously I used hard drives in implementing client situations. We've done about, uh, the previous company that I owned before I sold it was a managed IT company. We had about 200 corporate clients. Uh, it was called, uh, Nix. Uh, it was, a uh, uh, network installation computer services. And so we would still have situations where we'd be doing data recovery. We just didn't do it as a separate company. We did it as uh, you know, an exchange server went down or you had a SCSI drive that died and you had to actually do some sort of, uh, repair and recovery. And so it just kind of went in that direction. And then, you know, eventually I said, well, you know, this is a, a is a recovery company on its own. 
Um, and in 2000, 2001, when I started doing data recovery, I have to tell you, hard drives were a lot simpler than they are now. So it was a lot easier to build a base and to understand the equipment and to go through the process than it is today. Um, so I've continued to grow that information and continue to work on it and develop the equipment and, and move forward. But it, it took years and years and years of work and trying and uh, effort. And it's, it's kind of like a car mechanic without a manual. You uh, you end up with a situation where you're trying to replace engines and you have no manual, so you kind right. of reverse engineer a little bit of it as you're going through the process. Um, and so that's that's really how I learned most of what I know about hard drives. Um, not really formally trained in many situations, um, mostly fought to get the knowledge that I actually have. Right. That's you know because it it would seem like that because people come to you to learn how to fix hard drives, and I was just wondering. Had, you must have had to go to somebody, or did you figure it out on your own? And I, and, you know, I guess you answered the question on that. Yeah, no, I pretty much did it on my own and, and fought every piece of it. Bought lots and lots of drives. I remember the first time I was trying to do a head replacement, I ended up buying something like 12 or 13 drives uh, <laughs> around 2001 or so, wow. and actually going through 12 or 13 drives before I got one right. Man. And uh, once you learn the process and you figure it out, uh, it only gets better with practice. You actually are, you know, like today, uh, it's a common thing for me to do like, you know, eight head replacements or something like that in a drive. Um, they're very difficult to do, but, you know, now it's 45 minutes as opposed to three hours. Right. I think most people would have given up before they hit 12 drives. Yeah, no, you're right. Most people do. That's <laughs> usually the problem is, you know, doing data recovery is not so much about, uh, you know, just just having everything at, at your disposal. It's mostly about practice and persistence. That's what you're doing most of the time is trying until you get it right. Hmm. So, well, good for you, Scott. I commend you on your, your trials you. and tribulations and hard drives. All right. Well, you, you sent me an email here, some topics to cover. Um, why don't we just use that as an outline and go through it here? Yeah, that would be uh, great, especially since the first item on the list is uh, it's fairly detailed. There's actually a lot of information that I can talk about. Okay. Uh, new data recovery process. What's this all about? Well, there's been a big push over the years to develop more and more of the equipment that you deal with uh, data recovery stuff. Uh, to deal physically with uh, the file system, like a combination of the understanding of the equipment and knowing what's going on with the file system. And, and, and that's been a big change that traditionally the equipment was, okay, fine, I'm going to clone a hard drive, and so I'm only going to copy these sectors, but the device didn't need to know anything about your file system or the content that's on the drive. And now uh, with this new technology and with the new push, it's getting to a spot where now the device will understand what your file system is and what it is that you care about so that you can be more surgical in removing the files and stuff that you need as opposed to treating it as one big lump, one big you know device that you're actually trying to copy. Um, so I, I know I said a lot there in, in, that, in that whole discussion, but ultimately, if you really think about it like this, um, as drives are getting bigger, we're dealing with terabytes of information now we you know we have two two terabyte drives 2.5 terabyte drives three terabytes are on the way um so if you're trying to clone that drive to get your recovery back which is the traditional method of doing it in other words you copy every single sector on the drive repairing each individual sector as you can uh you have a ton of material that you're going to have to deal with copying a three terabyte drive could take days weeks months uh to actually before you actually get to a spot where you're recovering the data. 
But the idea is, okay, what if the device said, hey, look, I only care about the My Documents folder for this one user, Bob. What if you, if the hardware could actually say, well, what are the sectors that are related to that, you know, Bob's directory? And let's only copy those sectors and forget about the rest of the drive. That's what this new equipment is doing, and that's the direction that data recovery is heading, is to add this software intelligence to the hardware itself so that you actually make it through that process faster. Wow. Who's responsible for this? What company? Well, there's been a couple of companies, actually, that have tried and done semi-okay kind of ideas, but I, I didn't think that they were, you know, perfect. There there was no easy solution. Um, there's a, a company called Salvation Data that made a tool that's called the Data Compass that did what's what they're calling uh, imaging based on files, so file-based imaging. Um and it was okay. It wasn't. It, it wasn't a perfect device, mainly because uh, the way that it read the sectors was not ideal from mm-hmm. that standpoint. Okay. Um, but it still is. Uh, it still is a viable option. Still does quite a bit uh, of really cool things. But a new company uh, or a company that's been around for a while has changed the processes. The company's name is DeepSpar, and so DeepSpar has added a component to what they have a device that's called a deep star disk imager and they're calling it MFT imaging. So basically you can use the MFT, which is in an NTFS file system, a Windows file system, and you can be more surgical by using their software to decide what sectors that you're going to copy based on the MFT records themselves. Is the MFT basically like the table of contents of what's on a hard drive? Yeah, uh, pretty much. It's a master file table and uh, every record is basically 1024 in size, and that master file table will tell you everything about the contents, about where it exists, uh, what's on the drive, and where you can go get that data from. Hmm. So that would be a smart way of doing it then. Yeah, it's an extremely smart way, and it really cuts down the time. Uh, you, you know, to kind of give you an idea, normally uh, if I had a 60-gig hard drive and I needed to image it, I'd have to wait for 117 million sectors to be copied and repaired if they were damaged. And uh, I did a I did a data recovery last week where the only thing we cared about, we didn't care about the Windows system folder, we didn't care about the program files directory, we only cared about the My Documents folder. And so uh, once you've selected just this My Documents folder, when it got done cloning it, it only cloned 2 million sectors as opposed to 117 million. How much time was saved? Um, this one was done in about 10 minutes by comparison to the two or three hours that it normally would take. Man, you're excited yeah. about this then probably, right? I am pretty excited <laughs> about it. That's the, you know, plus the other thing is too, is that there's always a potential, uh, death in the hard drive while you're imaging it. Right, that right. You're, you're grinding on sectors that you don't need, or you've got some unallocated area that's not valuable. Uh, and you don't know what you have until you're completely done imaging it and plug it into a windows machine to see what files that you need from it. So this, when you're actually talking about whittling this down to a very small amount of information, makes all the difference in the world. You can, you can be much more surgical. There's a couple more steps. It's a little, a little uh, convoluted in the way that it actually has to be processed. But once you actually got these steps down, it will save you tremendous amounts of time. Um, and this is enough uh, of a value that I think that I'm going to change. Uh, I'm changing an entire day of my class just to accommodate this process and to train people on how to do this. And so I'm actually going to have a new setup in my class where there's an additional station that's shared between two people, a, a whole computer, a whole setup, and a deep spar disk imager that's going to be shared between two people in, in the class uh, at every table. And they're going to be doing this process themselves. We're going to simulate, like we're going to actually take hard drives, we're going to put content on it, we're going to break them, 
then we're going to physically repair them, and then we're going to put them on this device and copy the files off that we want. Man, I got a couple questions about this. This is this is cool. Uh, well, first of all, the deep the deep spark disk imager. Did you use that um, in your course anyway? Everybody has one of them, or um, I use it in my course, but mainly for display purposes. Like I actually, okay. um, I have like a two hour demo that I go through, and I do some training stuff in my course already on it. Uh, but at that point in time, it was pretty much like here's here's the things you need to know. These are the types of errors that you're seeing, and this is how you recover from them. But there wasn't any real. I mean, a student could come up and use it and and kind of do a little bit of hands on, but it wasn't at everybody's desk for everybody to play with and actually process themselves. Um, and so last week, I got uh, uh, I got enough to add to everybody's table. Um, hmm. just so that we can accommodate this process in the class. Did DeepSpar just kind of spring this on everybody, or is this? did you know this was coming? Um, kind of knew it was coming. Uh, what happened is, uh, so I've been doing the data recovery stuff for a while and doing classes for uh, several years now, and we've built kind of a little community. And this little community, um, we have a, a blog, basically, and we have a, 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 a Google's group that we talk on. And... Uh, several of the companies that do data recovery equipment have joined the blog, and they watch our conversations going back and forth. And back in uh, April or May of last year, there was a couple of us who were saying, well, look, you know, the DeepSpar makes this little log file, and if we can modify the log file, then we could tell it we don't want the unallocated space, and we can only get the allocated. So in other words, if you had a hard drive and it was formatted – uh, you know, a 60 gig hard drive and it was right. formatted and you only had 20 gigs of stuff on it. Well, let's not copy the other, you know, 40 gigs of stuff unless we're doing a forensics case or something like that. Um, so we, we, there was actually a couple of uh, previous students of mine who actually tried to modify and were somewhat successful at making uh, a modified table of the DeepSpar disk imagers already invented stuff. And uh, so DeepSpark kind of took notice of this, and they're like, you know, hey, you know, this might be a good idea. And I'm not positive they didn't already have some idea going on. <laughs> no, but you, I'm you pretty could... positive that that's where that, that decision came from. Yeah, you could take credit for that. And uh, I'm not taking credit. It wasn't even my idea initially. Um, it was it was one of the other guys in the forums' uh, ideas. And uh, uh, like, there's two guys, a guy named Gary and a guy named Tim, that were both working on stuff in between each other. Um, and they had some moderate success with it. But then, you know, I, I got a call from the guys at DeepSpar, and they were like, you know, hey, we're going to do this MFT, you know, table stuff, blah blah blah. I gave them a couple of ideas. They did they did most of the work on their own, and then they come back, and then they say, well, here it is. You know, try it out. And I thought it was awesome. Uh, I may still have a couple of suggestions for them on, you know, renaming a couple of things or something yeah. so that it makes more sense. But um, does it, but does the it basically trick – process is there. Does it, that's, that's cool. Does it basically trick the drive in, or the, the uh, device into thinking the drive smaller than it is, or is that is that basically what it's no. doing? Okay. Uh, what it does is – Initially, so the DeepSpar Disk Imager is this piece of hardware. It doesn't have Windows on it or anything. It's basically a DOS-based uh, box, uh, but it's a piece of hardware that it boots on this piece of hardware, and it can control timing and power and a couple of things for the the drive itself. But it's hardware; it's not software. So I don't want you to misunderstand. Even though it runs in DOS, that's what it's doing. It's uh, it's got it's got features and functions that are tied to this box, this okay. piece of hardware. Gotcha. Uh, so it boots on this piece of hardware. And you plug in your drive, and if you have an MFT, if it's a if it's a Windows formatted drive, it will copy the MFT. Now, the MFT itself is basically a little tiny database that no, most people don't see on their computer. They they don't know it's there. Windows hides it. You don't know that it's there, but it's still a file. 
And so since it's 1K records in size, if you had 71,000 files, then you would have, you know, 71,000 records is pretty much the point. And so you might end up with a, you know, a 71 meg database or something on your on your system. Okay. So this device's first job is, you know, how many partitions do I have? How many MFT tables do I have? Let's copy those. Hmm. And so it's only going to be a couple of megs of information in most cases, or a couple of hundred megs at most, that it has to copy. So it only takes like five, you know, four or five minutes for it to copy everything it needs. Right. Wow. And then, um, and then you take it to a Windows machine, and they have another piece of software, and it says, "All right, parse this this table, and let's take a look at what you have." And it'll show you the directory structure. You hmm. can see the entire directory structure from this MFT set of records, and uh, then you can select, "Oh, I want this user Bob." And you, you basically check all the boxes, and then it makes a new table, and it puts it back on the drive and says, okay, the DeepSard disk imager is only going to copy these sectors now. So it converts the clusters to sectors and looks at the locations of the files. Even if they're fragmented, it will, it will add them to a table, and then it will sequentially, and this is very important, that the drive is copying the data sequentially. It's not copying it. You know, normally, when you're looking at an operating system and it's, and it's active on the drive, the head kind of thrashes around a little bit. It's jumping all over the place trying to read the data because it's stored in multiple locations and multiple holes. Well, when you're imaging it, it doesn't care about mounting the operating system. So you just want to read your sectors sequentially so that they're done slowly and in order so that you're not causing the head to move around and hit some bad spot where you might not necessarily want to want to touch that part of the drive. Right. So it modifies this table. And then when you put it back on the hardware, it'll say, okay, fine. You want to image just the things you've selected. You say yes, and it will go and select those 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 sectors and image just those sectors itself. Wow, that's great. That's pretty it cool. It is. It's fantastic. <laughs> now, uh, one of the things that caught my attention was um, when, when you're talking about your course. This makes me want, you, want to do your course even more. Um, you, you put all this stuff on the drive, and then you break the drive. How do you guys right. break the drives? <laughs> Um, the best way is I make them completely disassemble it down to bare metal. So if there's if there's a screw or it can be you know something can be removed, we remove it. And so we're doing something that's not really real world, right? Because in the real world, um, you you only usually have a problem with one thing, like a motor seizes, and so you only have to deal with a platter problem where the motor might have seized, or you have a, a head that's bad and you only have, you know, one bad head or something has actually happened and you can still read the rest of the, the platters and the rest of the data from the other sectors. Um but, you know, that's 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 typical in a real world scenario. You would only end up with one thing that's bad. We're causing multiple things to happen because, you know, in the process of the, them disassembling this thing to nothing, they're basically saying, I'm taking the platters out, I'm taking the heads out, I'm taking – and I have all the tools to do it appropriately. So we're all – we just basically have a whole lab workbench basically set out for every person, and they completely disassemble everything. So they'll take a drive, they format it, they make sure it's good. They put data on it and fill it up, and then we take it apart down to their bare metal. Then they put it back together, and they do everything they can to actually understand how we're putting the heads back in, what we're actually doing uh, to reassemble the drive and to actually get it back into a functional mode, basically. And so that's basically where the mentoring, the tools, and and practice comes in. And uh, at the beginning of the week, it's usually pretty bad. Most people – 
You know, they got scratches on their platters and they're spitting on them. And, you know, it's a real mess. It uh, looks like they ate on it. But usually by the third and fourth day of them reassembling it and going through the process, they're clean. They look perfect. They're spick and span. And uh, they're doing a great job of assembling them without having any uh, major detrimental things to the drive. And we have a 90% success rate in the class that at, in, in the class by the end of the week, um, for every 10 people in the class, nine of them can do it. Nine of them can get a drive put back together and working. And some of them do four or five drives in the class and get them working. Wow. Um, so I'm amazed at, at sometimes it's, you know, sometimes it's the people with some of the least skills that understand uh, what I'm asking and that they're able to actually reassemble it. Uh, the harder ones are the techies, the ones who think that they're, you know, they're trying a lot harder. <laughs> um and but again, by the end of the week, you know, ninety percent of the people will will be successful. So in a thirty-person class, only three people are walking out, still needing to go practice. Huh. Um, and I never intended for it to be like something they were really going to be successful at in the class. That was never my thought when I designed it. Right. I was like, well, you know, you need a lot more practice than than you're going to get in a week. Right. But it turned out that you know the mentoring side and what we're actually doing, building our own tools and doing some stuff. Um, has increased the the success rate much higher than it was in the first couple of classes, and uh, so like I said, um, you know now a ninety percent success rate is pretty great. Um, wow. And again, you know it's just those last you know couple of people they have to go and practice. And most of those people, the ones that don't usually get a drive working, end up being some of the best data recovery people I know. <laughs> they end up being the ones that work the hardest at making sure that they understand it and get it together. Wow. Um, so, so, so you make the, you break the drives by just telling them to take it apart, basically. Yeah, uh, I mean, taking a drive apart is a pretty detrimental thing to do to the drive. Yeah. I mean, when you re when you're reassembling a drive and you have to put a new set of heads in or something like that, that's a that's a very difficult process to actually yeah. do it without ripping the heads off uh, more than you would believe. <laughs> so now, now does this new process come with the Deep Spar Disk Imager now, or is this an extra thing? And do they charge more for it? They do not charge anything extra. They didn't charge anything for the upgrade for the software or anything. They uh, they gave it to existing clients for nothing extra. Uh, they've only, uh, in the three or four years I've been dealing with them, they've only charged uh, for one upgrade, and it was only because in the DeepStar Disk Imager, they added a module that's called an oscilloscope, or that's what they call it, is an oscilloscope, and it does power-based monitoring. And so it's actually another piece of hardware that sits inside the device that's about $400 or so. Uh, that monitors the 12 and the 5 volts on the drive to tell you if the CPU is responding correctly on the drive, if the you know if you've got a motor problem or something like that, and so uh, you don't have to have it. You, it's not necessary to to uh, use the device. It's mainly to tell you more about the diagnostic side when a drive's not working correctly. Hmm. Like you'll you'll be able to tell a motor doesn't spin up or the head doesn't move correctly, or there are some problems that are. Um, there's a particular problem with Seagate drives. It's called a pending bug, and it can make the processor get really tied up while every couple of seconds will actually cause like a power spike as it is tied up with the processor looking at sectors to see if they're bad. And uh, the drive won't respond to you and give you back um, sectors correctly. But if you can see this power problem and you can see this spike in usage, you'll actually know what it is. Uh, even though you might not be able to fix it with the device, so well, so that's the only time in in like three or four years that they've ever charged uh, anybody an upgrade, as far as I know. Yeah, yeah, that's that's understandable. Seems like yeah. a, seems like a good company. They are doing a fantastic job. Um, I'm I'm very impressed with their customer support and uh, especially the upgrades and stuff. I mean, to continue to give 
uh, things that they're continuing to work on and put this in the device with no extra charge, I'm I'm amazed at. Huh. It's it's pretty rare to have people actually doing research and spending six months of their time writing software and not ask for more money to do it. Yeah, they're you know what they're smart. They're very smart. They're yep. they're that's just that act of goodwill is just going to boost their company even more. I think. Yeah, I, I certainly think that uh, they've created a good uh, a good amount of customer loyalty, and that's yeah. a big deal. Yes, it is. Rare, totally. Um, man, I I see it worsening day by day. I mean, I can't even get anybody on the phone now. And and some of the places I'm trying to call, like we were talking about the software before the show, this uh, this recording software I'm using. I wanted to upgrade, and I called, and uh, I couldn't even get a salesman on the phone. So um yeah yeah it's well, customers good customer service is uh I had a, a terrible event in the last even 24 hours uh there's this game it's called Supreme Commander you know you know the game No Well it's a uh, Supreme Commander is a uh, it's a there's a new version Supreme Commander 2 coming out and there's Steam I don't know if you know what Steam is. Yeah, it's a, yeah. the Valve company mm-hmm. that has like a distribution method. Yeah. So so they're going to release their game last night at midnight. So if you prepay at midnight, when when midnight crosses, you'll be able to play the game. Right. And at at midnight, everybody's on the forums. <laughs> There's like a hundred and something people in the forums going, This this game doesn't work and it did not start. Nobody was able to play it at all. And Steam has no phone number, no customer service, no nothing. They're they're like you know, hey, people, you can, we'll take your money, but we'll never support you. Right. And uh, even as of today, like at noon today, the game still wasn't working. And uh, so everybody who had paid was really pissed off about it, and and everybody's been upset. And then today, this afternoon, I know they got it working, but my whole thought process is nobody tried this. Nobody had any idea, and they don't bother to have any kind of customer support or service uh, you know, I guess they didn't get up until noon today <laughs> to work on the product. I don't know, but uh, they do kind of treat people like they're they're you know they're the slave to them. It's like if you want to play our games, well, you don't have any other choice. And people who even bought the retail disc, who went to the store, mm-hmm. bought the disc, it relies on Steam for uh, authentication. So it still didn't work. It still didn't work. Everybody Man. that bought the retail game still did not work at all. You know what? It's kind of a good thing. I don't want to get too off the subject, but let me just say this. It's kind of a good thing for anybody trying to start a business or is running a small business or even a big business because um, if you have good customer service, you're, you're almost insured success. I mean, like it yeah. is it is the thing that nobody else is doing now, so it, it can make you stand out, you know? Customer loyalty is, is the biggest, because that's where your referrals come from, especially yeah. small businesses. 90% of your referrals will come from existing clients. So that's the way to go. Yep. Customer service. I wish Steam had some. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. We could, I could talk about that forever. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Um, okay, did you want to go over anything else about this new data recovery process, or do you want to move on to some other stuff here? Uh, you know, there's not a lot more to cover from a standpoint of, you know, until you technically get into what you're actually doing. Uh, hopefully, there'll be some support for other operating systems coming up soon, because right now it's it's all focused on the Windows market, uh, NTFS as a whole. It would be great if at some point in time we have HFS support or something like that, or even another product that actually does something like HFS support. But, uh, you know, right now it's it's fantastic for what it does, and it's a move in the right direction. And uh, I, I can't compliment them enough on that, on that move. It's fantastic. Yeah, it sounds like a good start. So um, what do we got here with these new hard drives? 
Uh, the new Western digital hard drives. There's been a, a, a move for hard drive manufacturers to basically increase the block size uh, f that you actually have on your drive. From the standpoint of what's actually being delivered to you right now, you get 512 bytes. You know, basically a sector is delivered to you, uh, and that size hasn't changed in 30 years. It's been the same size. The, uh, the only exception to that has been solid-state disks. And so Western Digital is coming out with a new drive that has what's called 4K blocks. And so basically they're going to have much, much larger block sizes that the drive is reading. And then it's still going to deliver only the 512 bytes to you. But it's the, it's the next move in us moving to a drive that actually allows us to have bigger sectors. Because uh, Windows drives, Windows systems actually already allow you and can support larger block sizes than than 512. So it's possible to already go to something that's like a 1K sector or something like that. What's the benefit? And, uh, the benefit is basically speed in the block size that it's delivering to you. If you really think about it, like as we've been going up in drive sizes in you know two terabyte drives, right. we're losing a lot of the space on the disks to tracking the material. So there are certain things like you know ECC information and addressing information and things that's built in that's in the drive that takes up a lot of space. And they lose something. Uh, I've heard numbers as high as 33% of our drive space is actually wasted. And now you're getting a form, you know, the numbers that you're getting when you actually say I'm buying a 512 gig drive are already like a, a formatted or a raw state. Uh, but supposedly there's another, you know, 256 gigs of data on a 500 gig drive that actually is used for tracking the sectors and where things exist. So if you were able to diminish that capacity, now, the, the logical number that I hear the most uh, when you're actually calculating that space is about 12 to 15% of the drive. So if you figure 12 to 15% of the drive, you could have had, you know, when we had 500 gig drives, we could have had 640 gig drives. And as we have, you know, two terabyte drives, we could possibly, you know, possibly have 2.5 terabyte drives or so on and so on. Right, right. So uh, there's a lot of material that's used in tracking the size, and it takes a lot of processor power to track the size of these smaller sectors. If you increase the size, then you get back some information and you have larger amounts of, of data, so you're tracking less larger blocks, if that makes sense, as opposed to millions of small blocks. Yeah, it makes sense. But why is Western Digital still serving up the uh, 512, even though the, the blocks are bigger? Well, the main reason <clears throat> is, is that nothing that we have today, for the most part, could survive if we weren't getting 512. Everything pretty much that exists, uh, with the possible exception of like Windows and a, a few file systems, understand that the future is coming and that they may need to exist on larger blocks. Some of them have started changing, but for the most part, like for instance, uh, a write blocker. So that, it, you know, basically a write blocker is you attach a hard drive to it and it blocks writes going to the drive so that in forensics, you could basically copy the drive without concern for whether or not you're changing the drive or not. Right. Um, those are pieces of hardware that all have software running on them. Okay. And that software expects 512 bytes to be coming back. If you don't have 512, then it will possibly lock up or cause it to crash or whatever. So this, basically our software needs to still think we have 512 until we keep warning it or keep upgrading our system. Uh to the spot that we actually do no longer are reliant upon those smaller blocks. Does it make sense? Yeah, but w w when do you think that's going to happen? 
Uh, I think we're pretty close to it, actually. Uh, this is, like I said, this is one of the first steps. This has already been under development for like 10 years already, but, uh, but you know, that's still the scary thing is that some of the operating systems can't handle it. But we'll get to a spot where we'll go, you know, out with the old, in with the new, and we'll get rid of this legacy support that we still have for 512. Um, this is probably Solid State's biggest problem is that Solid State has larger block sizes, and they're tracking it mainly because of the way that NAND memory works on Solid State devices. And they, they also didn't want to lose a lot of this extra space. It takes too much effort for the drive to track very, very small fragments as opposed to very large fragments. Hmm. Um, and so Solid State already emulates this and then gives us back 512 bytes also. Um, but other devices have increased their sizes, like CD-ROMs and, and uh, worm drives and things like that have had different sector sizes uh, and and expect different sector sizes. So it's possible for us to go down that route fairly quickly. And like I said, uh, uh, Windows systems, NTFS systems have already made modifications to survive on larger block sizes. So okay. uh, I haven't been able to test it, obviously, but right. I'm sure that Microsoft has. Yeah. Huh. So they're making preparations, it sounds like. They are making preparations for it, yeah. And Windows Vista and Windows 7 both have uh, made a lot of headway in changing how data is written to the device itself. Uh, some of it, you know, obviously causing us some problems in the past, but, huh. you know, as as time goes on, they'll, they've fixed a lot of things, and there's a possible future where, we'll, you know, we'll just ditch the old stuff. We, yeah. You know, we're not relying on DOS 6.2 anymore, even though some of the structures are still there, and we're still <laughs> living with some of the legacy stuff that exists. Right. But, you know, if... You have a DOS drive. I doubt seriously that you're going to be buying a new hard drive with 4K sectors. <laughs> <laughs> Is it do the solid state drives? They're probably more easily adaptable to this, aren't they? It's, or um, they are, but only because they basically have a, a go between in between. In other words, they're the LBA blocks that we're requesting, which is a sector 512. Uh, basically, they have a physical block address that has a different size. And so they have this table that's kind of like, you can kind of think of it as an Excel table in between. You have this LBA blocks, and when it requests, you know, LBA block 1024, well, on the drive itself, it moves the data around because of the way that NAND memory works, um, it basically needs to be what's called where leveled. And so content has to be shuffled around in order to keep the cells alive so that they live longer. Hmm. And uh, so when it shuffles it around, whatever that, you know, Whatever that 1024 was that it asked for has to be converted to what's called the physical block address. So the physical block address and the LBA block address will go back and forth. Um, so any anytime that the request is made, the physical block address will be translated and then given where the new location is. I see. Okay. That sounds good. Uh, anything else on the new hard drives? That's, that's the primary thing. Uh, I don't think that they're... They're actually on the shelf yet. I think that they're coming, and uh, I don't, you know, I guess until we actually have a situation where we can test them and to see what the reality is that's going to be delivered to us, it's going to be difficult for us to know. So uh, as you see, you know, new 4K block size on the shelf, uh, I don't even know if they'll even let you know. <laughs> they may just, you know, hide it on the box like they do with everything else, and you don't know what it says anyway. But, um, but you know, I guess we'll find out a couple of weeks later what kind of problems we're going to be dealing with. So, but the speed's not going to be different, even though they're advertising this, because they're still only delivering the 512, or it will make a difference, even though they're... they're... I think there may still actually be a okay. performance increase on uh, files that are, you know, concurrent. I okay. mean, if they're, if the sectors are, you know, and that's a lot of what Windows systems do right now, is try to do everything, and so do Mac drives, they try to do everything they can to uh, to make them contiguous, to make the space contiguous. 
So there's a great chance that where things are contiguous that you may actually get some performance increase because it doesn't have to do multiple reads or multiple writes. Right. But obviously, you know, other things with fragmentation and still trying to emulate this 512k block, you know, 512 byte block, you might end up dealing with, you know, that kind of that kind of situation where it's, you know, not really a performance increase. Gotcha. Okay, cool. New hard drives, we'll see. Uh, new data recovery tool, CERT. What's this? All right, so CERT is uh, we've we've had some problems with uh, the current data recovery tools that do platter removals. Um, up until about 2006, 2007, something in that range, um, every platter was just sitting on a spindle. It basically looked like you know a bunch of plates that were all glued together through the spindle, and you could remove them by putting something that looks a lot like a coffee can around the platters. And then you could clamp down on the platters and you could pull them up. Right. Well, after that, they, there's there's a new – a lot of the new drives will have something in them that's called a spacer. And what the spacer is, it's kind of a, a screwed in in between the platters. It's this bracket that kind of goes all the way around the edge of the drive. So instead of having this empty space where you could put this coffee can around all of the platters and clamp them down, you now have this this spacer that sits in there that is in your way that you can't put this coffee can around. It's mm-hmm. a bracket that goes all the way across. And so uh, we've had problems trying to fix drives that are higher capacity drives, like a 500 gig drive that has a motor problem. If the motor bearing goes bad, you can't remove the assembly because you can't take out each platter one at a time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you cause a misalignment at that point in time. So you've got to remove them all at once. So for two or three years, different companies have worked on some different methods right now and of having different cutouts, you know, different different types of metals that have different cutouts, and they change per drive. So it's very difficult for us to deal with uh, platters that have spacers on them and get the right size and, and have a really good firm tool to hold them together. So uh, so this this particular company that's worked on a tool that's uh it's called uh, computer science labs they have a cert tool which is a spindle extraction and replacement tool and the idea that they have is that you sit this this tool bench over your drive and you have a uh, kind of almost like um, you know you go out in the yard and you and you turn off the water in your yard and you have this you know wrench that you basically have a big T shape and you stick it down in the grass and you turn your water till it turns off. You know what I'm talking about? That's that's maybe old school days. Cause now <laughs> now they probably, they still I'm sure you know they still have that out in the yard, but it's a big giant T that you basically oh yeah stick, yeah yes yes I know what you're talking about. Stick yep. over your hole where your water is yeah. and you turn the 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 top of the mm-hmm. you know screw or valve right. or whatever it is and you and you ba- it's basically along those lines okay. basically you're going to have this assembly that sits over your drive and you're going to take this T-shaped tool and it's going to come down through the assembly and it's going to clamp onto the center of the spindle and basically there's a pin that holds the spindle assembly on on the top of the drive so that your platters are mounted on that mm-hmm. And then the spindle assembly is sitting over a, a, a motor assembly inside the drive. It's kind of difficult to describe the you know the exact thing, but you can kind of think of it like you know you have uh, a motor, and sitting on top of the motor, attached to the motor, is a silver spindle that the platters are mounted to. And so it's all one solid piece basically. And then you, we've been removing the platters off of the spindle to move them to a new motor 
when there's been a problem. But now the idea is, well, what if you could take this this T-shaped tool and you could come down through the middle and you could puncture through the the pin assembly that holds the uh, bearings together inside the assembly and pull the entire piece out all as one. You mean the, so, the spindle and the platters? Yes, the spindle and the platters all come out all as one. And basically you could take this tool and then, you know, you could take another drive that you've already removed the spindle assembly from, and then you could just sit this right back down on top of that one and not have to grab around the outside edges of the platters like we've been doing for years. We're actually going to take it apart through the top now by actually pulling the spindle assembly out uh, with the platters on it. And then we don't have to worry about whether there's spacers or not because we'll just have the screws. We'll remove the screws, and it'll lift the entire assembly out, including the spacers. <clears throat> So uh, so that's basically the idea of this new tool. Uh, now, you know, the unfortunate thing is, is that uh, they want a lot of money for this tool right now, and it's uh, fairly expensive. Let me take um, a guess. I see it in the little case here. Five grand? Uh, more. Really? Yeah, yeah more. Ten? Yeah. Ten? Uh, yeah, my understanding was their initial price, uh, and they had it in, you know, uh, another denomination. But originally, when I did the calculation, it was going to be like ninety eight hundred dollars or oh, something. Come on! And they've dropped the price uh, to roughly about eight thousand dollars now. So it's about eight thousand now. Um, the previous tools that we've been using, all of them were, you know, under six hundred dollars, basically, or under eight hundred dollars. So, uh, so you could buy, you know, a a platter removal tool that was affordable, I thought, at least to do the job. But, you know, now the idea is, I guess, that, you know, $8,000, if you can do some recoveries, maybe you'll make your money back because, you know, that's why some of the houses that do data recovery charge, you know, $3,000 a drive is because some of the equipment, some of the tools we have are very expensive. But now we're taking one of our cheapest tools and we're now making it one of our most expensive tools. And uh, that was a little tough for me to swallow right now. Um, it, it seems like, uh, you know, something like a deep spar disk imager, which has a lot of work, you know, software-wise and equipment-wise in it, would be more expensive than something like this. And I'm not saying I want them to up their price by twice as much or whatever, but uh, but it just seems a little hard for me to swallow that, you know, just pulling the platters out is going to cost me $8,000. No. But, uh, but the idea is sound, and it looks to be, <clears throat> you know, fundamentally like the future, uh, mainly because... We, we don't have any way right now to actually deal with uh, <clears throat> this problem that we actually have. Wow. That's too much for that thing. I mean, it's not even like electrical. It's just completely mechanical. That's what it looks like to me. Um, I've seen uh, a rough video, but I haven't seen the complete video, so I don't know uh, how they actually go through the process of removing the spindle assembly and what they actually do at that point. But it, it does not appear to be robotic in any way. And we're looking at computerscienselabs.com. It's right. the, it's the spindle extraction and replacement tool cert. Yeah, it um we'll see. I guess um we'll see what what happens with the price if they're not selling them. They're, they're going to come down. But I mean, people might be buying this thing out of desperation. Well, uh, maybe, but you know, ultimately, most of the time, if something's really expensive like this, what ends up happening is y your next vendor creates a lesser version of that. Um, you know, it, it doesn't take very long for, you know, Chinese or Indian manufacturing companies to come up with something very similar to a popular tool hmm. and, uh, and you know, reverse engineer, especially something that's physical in nature. So where they might be a leader, you know, in designing it or doing whatever eventually might actually cost them something if they keep the price extremely high right. uh, by, you know, basically somebody else taking over that market. Right.
Interesting. Well, that's a shame it's so expensive, but it's cool you got the new tool out there for that. Yep. Okay. You spoke at ShmooCon. What's ShmooCon again? ShmooCon is a, basically it's a security conference in Washington, D.C. And uh, so I was there, I was actually there during this whole big snow blizzard that they had in Washington, D.C. that shut down all the airports and a hangar collapsed and stuff. Uh, so I kind of got stranded there that weekend. Um, but uh, ShmooCon is a is a pretty cool conference. Uh, it's fairly small compared to some conferences. They actually have a limited number of sales, and it's about 1,500 people total. Um, Why do they limit they, it? Uh, they limit it so they can control the size, and you know they don't want it to grow out of proportion. Uh, you lose quality in a lot of cases when you're trying to you know trying to just chase money from that standpoint. Right. Okay. Um, and they're not doing it to be to you know be millionaires or anything like that. Uh, their their profit margins are fairly slim by comparison. They're doing it for a community, uh, basically as a group of people to be educated and you know kind of the you know hacker club mentality mm-hmm. um but they generally have um about 50 speakers uh or 43 or something like that and they'll they'll speak on all types of topics whatever the newest things are for today uh it's typically not repeat talks or anything like that so it'll have content that hasn't been delivered someplace else before uh so i i did do a a new version of my data recovery speech for uh doing diagnostics, do-it-yourself diagnostics, and uh, how to do some diagnosis on a drive yourself if you don't have some high-end equipment or some some heavy-duty equipment. Hmm. Um, so that was pretty much the purpose of, of my talk. Uh, it went over really well. I had a, I had a, a large group of people in my room. Um, and it's a, it's a fantastic conference. It's every year about the same time, so somewhere around uh, you know, February or March you'll actually see it uh, in Washington, D.C., uh, I think this is their sixth one, if I'm not mistaken. Cool. You and you have it on a recording, huh? Yeah, it's uh it's already been released on recording and uh fairly soon I'm gonna publish it to my YouTube videos as well. But uh if you want to publish that in the show notes or something, people can go and watch this data recovery talk so they'll get another hour in addition to our hour uh that we have here talking. So. Totally, totally. I'll we'll put it in the show notes, but I'll just say it if anybody's listening on audio and they want to write it down. It's at ustream.tv slash recorded slash four five one three zero six five okay outer zone march 20th in atlanta you're going to be speaking at a uh, another conference yeah uh this one is a local conference for me because it's atlanta and uh huh. it's a small again it's a small group of people uh it's again not as large as schmoocon schmoocon's uh 1500 people as i said earlier this uh outer zone's about 100 people so if you're in Atlanta or near Atlanta or want to drive to Atlanta, um, there it's uh, done in a small hotel that's down near the airport, but uh, can easily support 100 people or so at the hotel. Uh, we have two conference rooms, and it's um, again, it's going to be a, a conference where it's a one-track conference. There'll be a bunch of different speakers, and it will be a, an entire day on March 20th. Uh, from morning to night. So it usually starts like somewhere around 9 a.m. in the morning and goes till 9 or 10 o'clock at night, and then everybody goes to dinner, has beer or whatever, and has a party at night afterwards. So uh, so what is anyway, it about? it's called Out- Outer Zone, and its uh, zone is spelled with a zero in it. It's an actual zero instead of Z-O-N-E. It's Z-Zero-N-E dot org. Outerzone.org with the O in the zone is a, is a zero. Okay. Right. Uh, what is it about the conference? 
Um, well, primarily, it's just about new topics, like whatever's, you know, again, it's a, a hacker kind of conference. And so it will typically have um, some content with regards to security. Some conf some of it will be uh, related to website development, things like that. Ooh. I'll be obviously talking about some hard drives and some some uh, new data recovery techniques. Hmm. And uh, and then there will probably be a couple of talks that are just more like, you know, like Arduinos and stuff, if you're familiar with Arduinos. Um, Arduinos are like little robotics, uh, you know, mini robotics where you can actually make like your uh, – what used to be the kind of things they would have done at Radio Shack but more intelligent now. Actually have a processor and try to do something and control a device. And there's a whole community of people who are building Arduinos and doing a lot of work. Really? Uh, what, how do you spell that? A-R-D-U – of course, you would ask me how to spell something. <laughs> uh, Arduinos. I never heard of it, but that's that's – that fast that kind of stuff fascinates me. It's a A R D U I N O. Arduino. And yeah, Arduino. Uh so if you go to that website, if if you go to uh, arduino.cc, so A R D U I N O.cc, you'll see the kind of things like people making little circuit boards and making uh and some of them will come as kits. Like you can like take two or three things like there might be one that has a GPS module and one that has a you know, some other kind of serial port interface. Right. But uh, they're, they build all kinds of things, you know, intelligent coffee makers or, you know, airplanes that fly and take snapshots of things. Uh, but there's all different kinds of boards and equipment, and there's little hacker groups all over the country, uh, all over the world, that are using Arduinos to build uh, their own electronic equipment Um for doing all these little kits and stuff themselves. Neat. Yeah, they, I started. I'm actually seeing one of these at Radio Shack. Not not even as complex as the one in the picture here, but they have like a processor and then like little motors and servos and stuff you could connect to it. On, on how to, and then there's right. a little book on how to program it. It's. I think yeah, it has a serial. I, I got to tell you, the stuff that they'll have at Radio Shack won't compare to the quality of the equipment and the stuff that you'll actually get doing Arduinos specifically. Arduinos. Okay. But uh, but it's the same concept. So right. people who don't understand the concept, it's kind of like how to learn how to do some of your own electronics and actually have some guides and some people who are doing some projects that will actually help you out. Um, it's a big thing. I don't know if you know what a hackerspace is. Have you heard of hackerspaces? Nope. So a hackerspace would be, you know, now as adults, we've grown up and we really love computers. And so there's groups of people that, you know, instead of trying to have like a user's group meeting at a local club or whatever, uh, they can't get the space or they're having problems with it. Um, people have cr created their own kind of, uh, you know, 501C uh, uh, groups and either bought or rented buildings and made spaces now where, you know, you will have your own area. You will have your own little hacker space. <laughs> And uh, so that's why they're called hackerspaces. And so typically you'll get like a club, like, you know, 20 people will get together and they'll all buy in and they'll pay a monthly fee and they will have a, a little uh, a little area of their own. The one in Atlanta is called Freeside. And so they have Freeside is about 50 members or something at this point. And they have, uh, a, you know, 5,000 square foot building or a 6,000 square foot building. And each person has like their own little area and they can come over and help other people and build stuff and do electronics and kind of share in this area where, you know, maybe they don't have enough space at home or they live in an apartment or something like that. And it's a, it's kind of like a club. It's a, it's a geek club. Basically. That is, that's one of the coolest things I ever heard. Yeah. They have them in uh, several different cities right now. I mean, like, uh, I know, uh, New York and, you know, San Francisco, Washington, DC has got one. There's one in Tennessee. Uh, and then there's one here in Atlanta, and there's a couple in California. So, wow. uh, but if you look up hacker spaces, 
you'll see all these groups that are getting together and kind of doing things like this. And I've uh, I've done some training. I've had a couple of people in my classes that are in hacker spaces. And so when I teach a data recovery course or something like that, they're going and helping other people actually, you know, in the hacker spaces. Nice. You know, some of it's business related, some of it's personal, but right. uh, you know, it's the, the same concepts. And some of them again have become very good because of their skills with electronics. Um, at doing data recovery or doing other functions. Hmm. Well, I got to check it out. I got to see if there's any in Philly. My thing. Yeah, I, I'm sure you got something nearby you. Uh, I don't know be. if it off the top of my head, but uh, but a lot of these conferences and stuff I go to, like Outer Zone, there'll be a, a majority of the people will be from hackerspaces that will actually come, and nice, some man. of them sometimes will even be a talk about a hackerspace while we're there. Huh. I got to check that out. Maybe I'll come down to Atlanta for that one. Um. Cat toys. That's what I want to do with my Arduino. I want to make some. <laughs> I want to make some high tech cat toys. You know, because like I have a cat that just all she wants to do is play all day long. If I could devise some device that just keeps her kind of occupied with a little laser shooting around the room, because the ones that they have in the store they just go in a circle, and and she gets bored of that. I want. I need to. Yeah. I, I want to create something uh, complex. You know, for an intelligent cat. That's that's my goal with my Arduino. Well, there are people who are doing things like, you know, like the Roombas and stuff like that, that, you know, roam around your house or, you know, to clean up the floor and yeah. stuff. There are people making things that are similar to that really? using Arduinos. So Ooh, I gotta, I'm sure you could do it. <laughs> I got to look into that. That's pretty neat. Okay. Um, and then why don't we just go over about your course? And I have an email I want to read about somebody who attended your course that I think is just an awesome email he sent me. So uh, I'll, I'll let you talk about your classes that you said they've changed and then uh, I'll, I'll read the email. Okay. Uh, you want me to talk about it first, or who sent you an email? I don't know. Um, I'll, I'll dig it up. I don't I can't remember exactly, but I have it. Okay. Well, uh, my classes have changed a little bit. What uh, What's happened is uh, Sands and I, who I was working with for the last year, um, now keep in mind I previously taught my class before Sands, and I'm continuing to teach my class now. Uh, actually, already have taught a class without Sands, and then continued on and have a schedule for this year already for San- without Sands. Uh, but I do have one more Sands class that I'm teaching in March. Uh, I'm actually leaving this weekend to go to Orlando to uh, teach for Sands this weekend. And then we have a couple of things maybe on the horizon. But uh, Sands and I agreed that you know monetarily we had some difficulty coming to an agreement. Uh, and so they did a fantastic job of running my, my class, and I appreciate all that they've done. Uh, but it just was kind of time to go, you know, back in my own direction. Um, there's a couple of things that I like doing better on my own. Um, even though Sands run a fantastic class, they're very professional and they do, uh, they do it at, uh, you know, really nice hotels and things like that, which I don't always choose the, the best hotels for <laughs> mine. Um, it's a little bit harder for me to negotiate, you know, some really nice deals or something with hotels, right. but I, not that I do it at bad hotels. It's, they're still good hotels, but, um, I also cater my events and, and when I do a class, I actually cater lunch. Uh, and it keeps everybody together and keeps time better, you know, trying to run out and chase down lunch for an hour, uh, and then splitting off the, you know, the teacher from the class, uh, doesn't really build the camaraderie and stuff that I really like to have. Yeah. Good point. So, uh, yeah, we have a lot of camaraderie in my class. Uh, a lot of the, a lot of the classmates and stuff that I have become really good friends for, for life. Um, and we get to know each other really well, but a lot of that is caused by, you know, we're stuck together all day long, every day for a week. <laughs> and, uh, some of that is because I cater the food as well. So. <laughs> That's smart. 
Yeah. So, uh, and I, and I do some pretty nice lunches. I don't do, um, <laughs> you know, some of them will do, you know, other people have done at other classes I've been to, you know, sandwiches or whatever, but I actually do things like, you know, uh, um, Olive Garden and stuff actually caters or whatever. I mean, it's typically going to be, you know, decent restaurants, wow. um, barbecue one day of the week and, you know, whatever else, but chicken camaraderie all together has, has really helped out and I really appreciate it. So, uh, I'm going to continue to do them my way. I have one coming up, uh, next month in uh, Washington, DC. I'm doing a class in, uh, April in Washington, DC. So if you go to myharddrivedie.com, you'll see my dates and, uh, where I'm doing things. So it'll be April and Washington, DC, and then San Diego will be in, uh, uh, May. So if anybody wants to hit the other coast then. San Diego is a great place to go as well. Sounds good. Yeah, you can, all the dates are at myharddrivedive.com, right? Right. Okay, cool. And then uh, you can't, you know, Scott's giving you a chicken parmesan. You can't miss that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this the email is from Rich. Is it Rich? Let me see if this is the one. <clears throat> yes, Rich Nossel. He says. Um, Steve, I've written to you before. I'm 58 years old, and I run my own graphic design and website business. I'm self-employed. I listen to your podcast at work. I've gone as far as downloading all the podcasts. I've listened to them in sequence. I also purchased the laptop repair videos, and I love them. Uh, here we go. Your podcasts have really piqued my interest in repairing computers, so I've done a few, uh, quite a few for friends and others. Nothing as a business, but maybe I'll, I'll dabble in it. I've been looking for something else to gradually migrate into simply out of boredom with my business. After listening to Scott Moulton's shows with you, I decided that hard drive data recovery was possibly the technical challenge I've been looking for. Last week, I shut my business down. I went to Atlanta to attend Scott's class. It was better than imagined. Scott provides all the tricks of the trade and walks you through the complete data recovery process. Just his labs on the available software is worth the cost. Learning from the best is what it's all about. The bottom line is that I could not have taken this course and understood much of it if it weren't for your podcast. I knew the terminology, techniques, and hardware required to make sense of everything. Even though I was out of place with the data recovery professionals that were there, I had no problem following along. My plan now is to start trying to recover data from damaged drives over the next year and then start a new business. It's going to be quite a challenge, but it's going to be fun and interesting. And best of all, I know the logic behind it. Thanks for all your shared knowledge. You blow Leo away. P.S. <laughs> <laughs> he says, uh, by the way, being a lifelong Mets fan since 1962, the Phillies suck. Always have, always will. <laughs> I read this on, on another show, and I, I liked Rich up until that last line. <laughs> well, Rich was a great guy. He was in my actually. This was the first class I taught without Sands in about a year, and so he was in this class. He was in this Atlanta class. That so he I got the good food. February. So What's he that? he got the good food then. Yeah, he got the good food. <laughs> when Sands makes you go out and buy your own food, but they do have snacks and stuff. Uh, you know, they'll yeah. have croissants and stuff in the morning and in the afternoon and some coffee. But uh, so Rich did uh, well, huh? I'm sorry. Rich did good, huh? Yeah, uh, Rich did very well. He was, uh, well, no, we, again, we had snow in Atlanta, so that was a worry for everybody here trying to drive around and stuff. But uh, uh, that was that was uh, one of the only caveats that kind of impacted us a little bit and, you know, trying to keep up with, you know, the time periods that I actually teach the class because uh. I teach long days uh, from, uh, we typically start from 9 and we go to 7 p.m. 
And so uh, it's a pretty long day as wow. a whole. But uh, Rich did a fantastic job in the class. Uh, I, I can't recall off the top of my head if he was able to assemble a drive and get it working. Uh, I think he was, but I'm not positive. Um, and, uh, I mean, I remember, you know, him working on it. And I really appreciate it. That was a great review. I really appreciate that. So, uh, and, you know, gives us a heads up for our, our podcast. So, yes. Can't ask for more than that. Yeah, that was a great email. Thanks very much for the feedback, Rich. And I'm um, gl- glad you enjoyed the class. Okay, Scott, any uh, last comments before we end off? Um, Not not really, uh, other than, you know, look for the classes in the future that I'm going to be teaching in uh, Washington, D.C. in April and then San Diego in May. Um, it's um, always happy to be here and, you know, give some heads up and some information to anybody about any new things that are going on. So if anybody needs anything, send me an email. I'll be happy to answer it. And that's your email address is? Uh, if you go to myharddrivedive.com, there's a box on the left, and you can just fill out whatever you want and send me a question, and it goes directly to me. And then I, So you don't actually have to like type in my address or anything. Got it. Sounds good. All righty, Scott. Well, thanks very much for joining us again. And people do clamor for the show, by the way. So it's very popular. So uh, can't and thank you enough for doing it with us. Well, anytime. Thank you. Okay, and that's going to be it for this week. We'll see everybody next time.